0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Loving Our Rage, a podcast produced by Affirm SF Bay Area. We are the San Francisco Bay Area chapter of Affirm, a transnational feminist organization, and we're committed to the liberation of all womankind. Today we have a very special episode for y'all. We will be talking about a very important topic, which is missing and murdered Indigenous relatives. This is an incredibly important movement that sheds light on the fight for the rights of Indigenous folks, a movement that is so often erased and made invisible. To talk about this, we have a special guest, Morningstar, who will be sharing about her work in this movement. But first, we will introduce ourselves, those of us who are hosting this episode. My name is Denise, and I am a core member of a firm SF Bay Area. I've been involved with the firm for about five years now. And next, I'll hand it over to Arthi.
1: Hello, my name is Arthi. I'm hailing from the East Bay, and I've been in a firm for three months now and excited to continue this work into the future. I'll pass it over to Daniela.
2: Hi everyone, my name is Daniela. I am a core member of the Affirm SF Bay Area chapter. I'm currently residing in the South Bay and I've been a member of the organization since 2014.
0: Thank you all. And now uh, we would love it for Morningstar, if you could please introduce yourself.
3: Kimi my name is Morningstar Galley. I am Ajumawi Band of Pit River, which is located in Northeastern California consider the San Francisco Bay Area to be home. I was born and raised in Oakland, California, part of the AIM for Freedom Survival School, which was also known as the Oakland AIM House, so have lived throughout the East Bay and worked throughout San Francisco for over two decades, and it's
1: an honor to be here with all of you. Thank you so much Morningstar for coming on to talk with us. The work that you're doing and, you know, the the topic that we'll be talking about, missing and murdered Indigenous relatives, it's really important for us and, you know, we're really looking forward to the conversation that we're going to have today about, you know, this topic well, larger ways to support um, missing and murdered indigenous relatives movement, um, indigenous relatives here in the Bay Area, as well as, you know, indigenous women and how we can, you know, support them. So thank you so much. Um, The first question that I wanted to ask you is, what is the work that you do and why is it significant to you? Thank you for that question. So the work that I
3: do is serving as the project director for Restoring Justice for Indigenous Peoples. You can find more information at indigenousjustice.org. Through the work of RJIP, we work to expose and address the disparities of California's indigenous peoples, especially women and youth within the carceral system. We use traditional and cultural life ways and practices, community organizing and advocacy to restore justice to our communities and our ancestral homelands. And so we do that through advocating for our missing and murdered indigenous relatives, working directly with impacted families and uh, the base building throughout our tribal and intertribal communities um, around the crisis of MMIR and system impacted uh, native youth, native women, girls, our two-spirit and trans relatives, We say that 100% of our youth are considered system impacted due to the history of colonization ongoing colonization um, and the systemic injustices of
1: Indigenous peoples as a whole. Thank you so much Morningstar for talking about all of the important work that you're doing. And I'll pass it over to Daniela to talk about our next section. Thank
2: you, Arthi. So um, Morningstar, we wanted to talk a little more about the history around settler colonialism in the Bay Area and how that has ties to the ongoing violence, genocide, and oppression of native people. So so I'm wondering if you could speak a little more to the history of settler colonialism and how that ties into the violence of missing and murdered indigenous relatives, specifically in this locale and region of California and the Bay Area.
3: Sure, thank you for that question, Daniela. I think that, you know, there's the generalized messaging of settler colonialism, right, that can be very nuanced and kind of, you know, the messaging gets lost a bit in the uniqueness um, of, of the both historical and current context of colonization, especially within the San Francisco Bay. Um, and so, recognizing first that the East Bay Area is home to the um, Chechenyo Ohlone peoples and that the San Francisco Bay Area is home to the Ramatush Ohlone peoples and that we have many tribes, you know, from Coast Miwab to Yokuts to all of our, our Ohlone and Selenian relatives throughout the, the region of the Bay and that our relatives are not afforded federal recognition. And so since the time of missionization, 250 years ago, that, um, you know, there was the the Spanish colonization where our our relatives were forced, um, it was, you know, the missions and the forts were these first institutions of incarceration and chattel slavery of of enslavement um, of Ohlone peoples. And in the ways that women and girls were trafficked, um, the ways that there was sexual violence um, used as a tool of colonization, that this stolen and unceded land was used in exchange for indigenous women's bodies. Um, And so we see those and we experience those effects very much today in terms of the policies, the paternalistic federal Indian laws and policies that say that the US government gets to decide who is and who is not an indigenous person um, based on on blood quantum and based on federal applications and petitions for California tribes. you know, just speaking to California being very unique in the sense that we have, 109 federally recognized tribes, but we have over 50 tribes that are considered NFR that are not afforded federal recognition. There are many tribes within California that have been terminated, that have gone extinct, that have tribal peoples that have been disenfranchised, um, landless California tribes, um, and many disenrolled tribal peoples. And so you know, there's not a one size fits all when, when it comes to the uniqueness of, of our issues here. And so again, it's um, challenging that erasure and, you know, and, and invisibility of California tribal peoples, but also recognizing how um, that directly affects women, children, um, our, especially our girls and our, our two-spirit relatives.
0: Wow, that that context I think is so important and it's so needed because I think nowadays when we talk about you know the impacts of colonization and imperialism, um, some folks tend to think of them as a thing of the past, a thing of you know something that happened hundreds of years ago, um, when in fact it's something that still has a very real impact on the lives of people today and especially on those who are most marginalized. Um, we're talking here about native girls and women. Um, And so I think that context is is so important. And um, when I was looking at at the website, I noticed that California is top top five for indigenous women facing crises and survival. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about what does safety for indigenous women look like in California and the Bay area?
3: Sure, I'll share that. Yes, California is within the top five. Um, San Francisco, the city of San Francisco is number one, um, the number one city, and the city of Sacramento is number two um, throughout our region in terms of the high rates of disappearance and murder of indigenous women and girls. And so, you know, we have, I mean, even just talking about it, you know, it's, it's very personal. These are our sisters. These are our friends. These are, you know, our relatives that, that we've grown up with and, you know, didn't ever think that this would be, you know, situations that we would be addressing. You know, these are my sisters that I I was in ceremonies with and, you know they would help us with security on Alcatraz Island and you know there's a lot of especially within the media there's a lot of um messaging of you know that is is messaging around, around victimization and so like what did they do to put themselves in the situation right but we know that these are systemic injustices we know that this is a system that is designed to to fail us within that sense and i have my own personal experiences um, of that that i i can speak to that you know when we do you know quote unquote everything possible that we are supposed to You know, and protective measures for for our safety, even speaking out about it, um, you know, puts us at risk, and you know, puts that um, creates a situation where where we can be targeted, um, both within our community and and externally, um, especially in you know this this age of digital violence, and so. you know, the reality is, is that Native women and girls are not safe, that we haven't been safe since the time of colonization and that it, you know, exists in different forms at this time. But, um, you know, but, but the reality is that in, in advocating in this work, in the everyday effort of, of just survival, that, you know, that, that we are targeted in that way.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, recognizing that when these systems of oppression come together between white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism, it creates these conditions that that make it very unsafe for our native relatives. And so, you know, with that, um, I I know that you've done some really incredible work to provide healing for families who have been impacted by this violence. Um, Can you please talk a little bit more about what does healing look like for families who um, are impacted by losing a loved one who may not know know, where they are, may not have answers, navigating the system to try to find answers. Um, What does healing look like?
3: Sure, I think that there's not one, there's not one definition of healing. Um, you know, it's so personal and it's location based. And so it's really meeting people where they where they are at. And so working directly with families that have been impacted by losing their loved one or having their loved one go missing, um, supporting them in their advocacy and what they understand and believe what justice looks like for them. And it's, you know, the there can be challenges in navigating that, you know, utilizing an abolitionist lens and, and framework, yet, you know, the families believe that, you know justice for them may look like the sentencing of the perpetrator and so understanding that again these systems don't work for us but you know we were we will be there to support the families within their individual and collective community healing and so that looks like supporting them and holding a vigil for their loved one that looks like bringing the families together and holding a prayer walk so that they understand that they are not alone on this journey that they never thought that they would be on that you know that there are collective healing processes it means access for them to be able to participate in ceremony within their both tribal and intertribal communities you know it's a multitude of healing justice practices um, ensuring that they have childcare and maybe some gas funds, and just you know groceries in the fridge for their children, and just the support that they need overall to get through their day-to-day experiences. Um, like there's so much in terms of just witnessing and supporting um, families that you know the toll that it it has taken on children whose whose moms have have gone missing or been murdered, some of them right in front of them, on you know, their their sisters, the way that addiction and violence, um, the way that those cycles are are perpetuated. And so it looks a lot like, hey, let's go to ceremony this weekend, let's, you know, have access to that. Let's let's ensure that you have that access um to be able to attend and participate and so again it's just you know ensuring that they have what they need and that their needs are met and um you know that these cycles are of violence are not continued in you know in in the way that um more harm is caused
0: yeah absolutely thank you for sharing that and really providing the The broad scope of what healing can look like. There are so many ways to approach healing for for these impacted families. And when we first spoke, you shared a story about a ceremony at Sutter's Landing. Would you be willing to share a little bit more about that particular ceremony and why it was why it was uh, sort of significant?
3: Absolutely. Um, for the past couple of years, I've lived within the Sacramento Valley area, and I'm a guest on the homelands of the Nisenan, Miwok, and Maidu tribal peoples, and so building that relationship with the local tribal communities, um, acknowledging that, again, the tribes within the area are, are considered, far non-federally recognized, and so really just trying to advocate and, and support through, you know, the issues that, that they um, are faced with. And so a big part of that within the Sacramento Valley area is, is the naming of Sutter and the use of Sutter's Fort. And so what Sutter's Fort represents within uh, downtown Sacramento is this institution that is really the epitome of enslavement and genocide of California native peoples that Sutter made local Miwok peoples eat out of pig troughs, that he was, you know, found to have participated in the sexual violence that that he was a perpetrator of girls at the age of 11 and 12 years old, and committed acts of sexual violence against them. That he participated in the burning of village areas and of the massacres. And so, to have, you know, almost everywhere you turn within the Sutterville and downtown Sacramento area, have these places named after him, have these statues placed in his honor. Um, so, part of my commitment has been. In, in challenging that and what we have called of you know a de-desettering of, of the sacramento valley area and recognizing that these areas are are sacred and they have traditional village names um, that i won't share out of respect to the tribes you know but that we don't need to be using these colonizer names and so part of the healing and and tying that to the missing and murdered indigenous relatives Um, And and we use relatives to be encompassing of all genders of our encompassing and, and of our two spirit relatives and trans and non-binary, you know, and recognizing that, that as, you know, as peoples, that we are relatives to one another. And, and so we started down at the river and we had local tribes provide an opening and, When we were organizing this event, um, you know, it was in the midst of a pandemic. I honestly thought that, oh, we'll have, you know, 200 people max. And even that's kind of pushing it. Like, we'll have 50 people show up in the morning, 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning. And we ended up having over 600 people show up, which was beautiful. And just really spoke to, you know, the need for that opportunity to gather together, the need for people to be together in community and participate in in some sort of healing process and for some families that have had their loved ones killed within a violent way you know we even say that our relatives that have been murdered by state violence and i i lead the healing justice committee on behalf of anti police terror project in sacramento and so working with directly impacted families and you know making that connection and linkage to, you know, our our relatives that have been have been killed by state violence. And, you know, some of the families brought up to 25 of their family members because they never had that opportunity for closure. It was all too traumatic in terms of what they were dealing with at the time. And so we gathered at the river and we um, had prayer said on behalf of the local tribal peoples, had a really beautiful welcoming and there were twelve to fifteen impacted families that we supported, and we were able to gather down at the fort. And really, you know, I I feel it was a reframing in a sense of what the fort represents, um, and gathering together in an opportunity to heal, gathering together in naming the violence that has been committed um, in the name of of colonization, and upholding white supremacy, and to say that. You know, even um, gathering together as a community is, you know, directly in resistance to all of the atrocities that have been committed against us.
0: Absolutely, thank you for sharing that story. Um, and I think it's such a testament to the need for community and holding one another um, and supporting one another um, as part of the healing process. And so now I'll pass it over to arthi for our next question.
1: Yeah, thank you, Denise, and also thank you, Morningstar, for you know sharing those um, you know moments and those stories from you know that incredible um, march that you rec- that you organized. So now I kind of wanted to talk about um, what we have been talking about, which is you know the increased uh, sexual violence that Indigenous women face. As a result of you know settler colonialism, colonialism imperialism, and uh, capitalism, and we wanted to talk specifically with you about um, how the role of hypersexualization of native women um, impacts this you know increased rate of uh, sexual violence that they experience.
3: Sure, um, yeah, thank you for that question because I think that it's not an issue that is. Discussed as much as it should be. You know, we may have you know some conversations around Halloween, for example, in in terms of you know the hypersexualization around you know Indian princess and Pocahontas costumes. But um, you know, it's it's ongoing, especially with the mascot issue and the way in in which. Indigenous peoples are represented within this characterization and cartoonization of, of who we are, that we're not actual people, that we're not human in a sense, that we don't exist in that way. And the way that that's translated to Indigenous women and girls and, you know, any, any of the costumes of, you know, are extremely hypersexualized. you know, and recognizing that Pocahontas was a 12-year-old girl. You know, there's an entire, you know, Disney series of, you know, of of these uh, films that have been made, you know, that really have glamorized and, and glorified um, her story, but recognizing that that she was a 12-year-old girl that was taken and that was trafficked, you know, she was taken from her homeland and taken, you know, back to Europe. And so, you know, telling, again, it's, you know, this Effort to tell the truth in history and to really change that narrative of, of telling the truth about the ways in in which Native women have been have been exploited in that sense. And you know, again, going back to the trafficking of Native women and girls, the way that they were um, violated in using their bodies um, against. Their will, you know, in, in the building and of the missions and the building of the forts um, here throughout California, um, and, and also in the ways that, you know, that's continued today in terms of the stereotypical imagery and, um, you know, very much this messaging and treatment that, that we're less than, that we don't exist, or that we only exist within this uh, fetishization.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Morningstar. I think it's important to realize that, you know, fetishization, um, hypersexualization, you know, rewriting history through Disney movies, these are all forms of dehumanization and they directly contribute to, you know, these incredibly high rates at which Indigenous women, Indigenous people are subject, uh, are subjected to violence, state-sponsored violence that they face. So thank you for naming that.
2: You know, Morningstar, you've given us a lot of food for thought, and I can't help but notice how, when you you're speaking to the history of the missions, or you're speaking to to the figure of Sutter, how ever present and ongoing settler colonialism is, how insidious and naturalized it is, as if, um, you know, there's kind of the rewriting of history itself, and the erasure of native peoples, the erasure of um, of native women. And also, I hear these echoes of, um, you know, very young native girls being trafficked, um as young as twelve years old, exploited. I'm wondering um, if you would be willing to elaborate on um, the phenomenon of um, the overrepresentation of indigenous women in the sex trade and how this connects to the history of settler
3: colonialism. Sure, it's absolutely connected in terms of um, the history of, of trafficking and the history of enslavement of, of native girls that they were, um, I mean, that was, you know, in a sense, a way that the, uh, you know, through these forced acts of violence that they were able to obtain, um, our lands was through the violence that was inflicted on, on native girls and women and, um, you know, subjugating them to to the violence, in you know, again in in that form um, that I I spoke to in the last question of the dehumanization and and treating us overall as as if we are not human and that we don't exist um, in you know within within our our full selves. And so I think that you know that is very much. Continues today, um, but the roots of settler violence and settler colonialism is is inextricably linked to the violence inflicted upon Indigenous women, to the way that Indigenous women were trafficked, to the way that our bodies were violated and stolen, and you know that we even count that today in terms of our missing and murdered Indigenous relatives that are women that are incarcerated, that are girls, that are in the foster care system, that in all of these other ways of, of you know, that they are being held um, within these, you know, these, these systems that are keeping us from our families and from our children, um, or keeping our children away from us, that absolutely is, you know, part of the resource extraction um, since the time of colonization, the violence that's inflicted upon Mother Earth on, on a daily basis in terms of these oil pipelines and the, you know, mining, um, of, you know, what's considered resources and not that these are, you know, our, it's not viewed as our sacred lands and our sacred water, that the commodification that happens, um, is, is absolutely tied in, and I think that's something even that's challenging within the environmental justice movement is that, you know, there's not that recognition um, or even acknowledgement um, for those Indigenous values and that it's more than, you know, like, of course, it's important to address climate change and, you know, in the crisis that we're in, but it's so much more than that in terms of um, the way that Indigenous girls, Indigenous women, and Mother Earth as a whole um, is being violated.
2: Right, absolutely. Thank you for making the connection between the violence on uh, Native bodies and the violence on, on Native land and how those are inextricably linked. I'm, I'm thinking just on some research we've done in our chapter in the Bay Area. And, you know, this is, this is independent research. We're, we're not historians or um, we're just organizers. And one of the things that we located in our research was how, how the sex trade came to San Francisco during the gold rush and how the extraction and the, the exploitation of land and the, the colonial push westward was tied to mining of gold to To the establishment of, of saloons and of, and of brothels. And so I guess I'm, I'm just connecting this back to, to your point on how this violence, it all comes simultaneously and um, they can't be understood separately because they co-constitute each other.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, and, and it's something that seems, you know, like I don't even, uh, yeah, I appreciate you explaining it in that sense because I, I think sometimes I just kind of forget that, you know, it's so obvious in a sense in terms of what we are dealing with within our tribal communities, um, the effects of gold greed and genocide, we call it, you know, the toxic legacy, um, of you know of the gold rush and those continued effects today um you know that we have tribal lands for example um just visiting some of my relatives yesterday that tribal lands that are you know housed next door to a superfund site how the mine tailings of, of mercury mining how those mercury tailings were used to line the roads and the housing foundation how it was a situation created by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, how it was a situation created by the um, Environmental Protection Agency, that these are agencies that are supposedly designed to um, help and support tribal nations um, in their sovereignty and self-determination yet have been very detrimental in their actions where the tribes have, you know, do not have clean drinking water where they're not able to go swim within the lake in their backyard, where they have some of the highest rates of cancer and health effects just, you know, such as autism within tribal communities. And that this even exists today here within California that people don't believe or or even know, you know, that there are communities that are, are suffering in that sense and that very much is absolutely you know tied to this toxic legacy um of the gold rush of gold greed and genocide of the trafficking of california native women's um experiences and and how that continues today um in terms of you know the the trauma that we have experienced and continue to experience i think even recently with um you know the 215 children that were found in in Kamloops Canada and just understanding that we have massacre sites all throughout California that we have boarding school sites you know where we had 300 plus relatives that that were massacred and so you know um almost being desensitized to it in in that that um you know, it happened, the genocide throughout California was so swift and wiped out 98% of our populations. And so, for us to exist today, you know, having those experiences of our great grandmothers being trafficked, being force marched, um, to, you know, the violence and, and hypersexualization that our, our children experience today.
0: Yes, absolutely. And this is why we, we have to name these connections um, and keep this, this history present um, and connect them to what we're seeing today because otherwise, you know, history will be completely rewritten and forgotten. Um, and so, you know, with that Morningstar, we wanna thank you so much for sharing space today um, and making these connections with us. The work that you're doing is so important. And, you know, as transnational feminists, we want to continue supporting the movement for missing and murdered Indigenous relatives. So, how can we support you and the work that you're doing? Um, can you recommend any pages or websites to follow, ways for folks who are listening to this episode um, to get plugged in to support?
3: sure um yeah i would just say thank you so much for for the support and opportunity to be able to um, engage in this conversation with all of you for more information folks can go to indigenousjustice.org or email us at nativejusticenow at gmail.com we do have there's a couple of different facebook groups there's an mmir sacramento Um, in terms of keeping um, updated on on events um, and ways to support impacted families. There's there's information there as well.
0: Thank you again, Morningstar. This has been a really eye-opening conversation in so many ways. And thank you all for tuning in to our second episode of Living Our Rage, a podcast by Affirm SF Bay Area. You can listen to us on Spotify, Anchor, and Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are at Affirm SF. That's A-F-3-I-R-M-S-F. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Bye.